I literally spilt a cup of hot tea on my groin last night in bed. And how? Like, I was lying down. It's not how you do it. And I just rested. I mean, my cup I guess some there. guys are into that. <laughs> Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Dan Delamotte, and I am so excited to be joined by the playwright Matthew Lopez. Matthew, thank you for coming in this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, when I knew that I was going to be chatting to you, I read your play, The Inheritance Both Parts. I read it on the tube, I read it at my desk, I read it in my bed, I read it in other people's beds, I read it everywhere. Oh and I really, really love it. So congratulations, and I can't wait to watch it, and I can't wait for the people to watch it that are listening to this uh, this morning. But we're not going to start there. We're going to start with you growing up. Oh, God. <laughs> if that's all right with you. We... Because I'm curious as to know where this talent that you have came from and, and when and how the arts featured in your childhood. Um, I, can, I, I, I can only speak to the question of the arts in my childhood, which was very hyper-present from the, from the beginning. Um, I think the first thing that really... Um, struck me as a child was being taken to New York City uh, fairly regularly uh, for visits. I grew up in the panhandle of Florida, which is the northern part of Florida, which is very, uh, very southern, very conservative. It doesn't resemble the Florida that most people think about when they think of Miami, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, the Keys. Um, The area of Florida I grew up in was very much akin to Alabama. And... um, uh, I was taken very young, at a very young age to New York for visits to visit my, my parents' family. It's where my parents come from originally. And I was taken to Broadway shows at a very young age. I, I remember I was maybe four and a half, and I was taken to see Peter Pan on Broadway. The very first theatrical experience I ever had was seeing Sandy Duncan and Peter Pan on Broadway. And so my first um, interactions with theater were, were magic, was flying, was pirates, was, you know, it was, 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 was fairy dust. It was, in some ways, I don't think I've ever um, let go of that notion that that's what theater is. Um, and then several nights after that, uh, my parents took me to see uh, my aunt, who is an actor, in a musical called A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine, in which she played Harpo Marx. Oh, my God. Yeah, she, and she won, the, <laughs> she won the Tony, actually, for that for that performance, for Featured Actress in a Musical. And, um, and uh, that was the one-two punch that really kind of locked it in for me very at a very early age. I was, I, I think I was maybe four and a half, maybe not yet even five, when I saw both of those things. And I'm not joking, the, the path of the rest of my life was set uh, in that three-day period. Um, because with Peter Pan, I learned that theater is magic. And watching my aunt play Harpo Marx, I, I was told that, that, it, that, we, that I could do it too. And were you encouraged then to, to pursue the arts, pursue theater? Right away. My parents just sort of saw me light up. And um, they're being the great parents that they were. They really encouraged this. And um, very soon after, thereafter, I, I auditioned for my first community theater production and it was actually it was Peter Pan uh, and it was the play actually not the musical and um, I played uh, Michael Darling and that was my first um, uh, that was my first foray and that was the beginning it really was a very clean simple introduction uh, for which I have never been offered a cure I I, I absolutely fell hard uh, and I've never looked back there was never a moment in my life except for perhaps 
uh, at the depths of my despair as to ever getting a production of this play or that play when I thought, oh, I'll just go to law school, forget this. Um, I always I always knew what I wanted to do in some capacity. It started as acting, and then uh, in my early, early mid-20s, it moved over to writing. We're skipping forward slightly, but I've just had a brainwave, which is Toby Darling, one of the protagonists in The Inheritance. Is that a reference to oh, yeah. Peter I mean, Pan? His full name is Toby Michael Darling, and it's, it's an absolute reference to Peter Pan, which was the first... Uh, piece of art that I fell in love with Um, and um, you know Peter Pan is about never growing up Peter Pan is about escape Peter Pan is about absent parents Uh, and that are that's one of the those are the three things that mark the character of Toby so I I consciously gave him a a name from literature but that, that's just dawned on me. But let's let's backtrack again to to uh, growing up in the in the Panhandle of Florida, then, because sure. theatre and, and the arts must have been a, a release for you, because you were, by all accounts, a sort of an, another. You were the only Puerto Rican family uh, there, and you were you were a, a gay kid, and so theatre must have been an opportunity to kind of escape some of the realities of that existence. No, absolutely. I mean, as far as I was aware, as far as I could tell at the time, we it, even if we weren't the only Puerto Rican family in my hometown, it, it certainly felt like we were. There was no sense of community that I was ever exposed to as a child. Again, we're not talking about the Florida of Miami or Tampa or Orlando, where, where, where the Latino community thrives. We're talking about the panhandle of Florida, where where it simply doesn't. It, it's changed recently over the last decade or so, but at the time that I grew up in the 1980s, that was just not, um, there was no community to speak of, at least not that I was exposed to. And so uh, the community that I grew up in there, the community that I felt safe in was a theatrical community. I started to do amateur theatrics. I, I was uh, I was Patrick Dennis in Mame. I, I, you know, I did Peter Pan. I played Oliver. I, it was like all the great, the pantheon, <laughs> pantheon of great childhood roles. I played them all. And um, Bugsy Malone <laughs> never did that. Never did that. And 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 it's just a shame that that they wrote Newsies too late for me to do that in community theater. Um, but I I um, it, I didn't feel. I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't feel safe growing up. I didn't feel safe. Uh, in the town that I grew up in. I didn't feel safe at school. Um, I was bullied. Um, I was uh, ostracized. Um, you know, I, I, there used to be a line in the play that I took out, which is, you know, if mothers are the first, if, if mothers are the first to know that your, their son is gay, the classmates actually learn before the, the mothers do. And um, without at first putting a name to it, uh, a lot of my classmates at the very least identified that I was an other weird last name that didn't sound like Smith or Jones or, you know, all the, the last names that were sort of around me at school. Uh, fairly effeminate little boy who really loved musical theater. Uh, I was very, I was singular and I felt singular, except for not in a special way. I felt um, out on a limb. I felt on uh, at times I felt as lonely as someone on the moon, and um, theater was a huge escape for me. It's how I had a community. Um, uh, books, for sure. I I remember sitting in my room and just I, I read I read Around the World in eighty days in in, in an afternoon uh, once, um, uh, and then eventually movies became a big thing for me as I became a teenager, became m- movie obsessed. Those three things were the, were the staples. Of, they were my coping mechanism. And I mean, you know, I, I've talked very openly in, in other 
forums about, you know, I, I picked up less, um, less healthy coping mechanisms as I became an adult. Um, but um, it, it started with theater books and, and movies, and, and those have been, th- those at the very least, despite the, uh, the vicissitudes and the uh, disappointments of a life in theater, a career in theater, those are the three things that have, have, have rarely ever let me down. And is that why community features so heavily in your plays, not just The Inheritance, but, but the other plays that you're known for, Whipping Man and, and, and others, that community really features in them? Is that, is that you kind of investing in a community which you perhaps didn't feel was present in your childhood? I, I think perhaps it might be. I, you know, I, 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 my home, my childhood home was a very safe place. It was a very happy place. Um, I suspect my parents didn't always necessarily know what to do with me, but I never doubted that I was loved and it was never um, th- that that truth was never kept from me um, but when I went out into the world I, I did feel unsafe I think if anything my all w- one of the things that most of my plays has in common is that it, it is about two things they, they usually are about two, one of two things and oftentimes they're about both they're about homes um, which can be translated both to actual dwellings or also we're just simply talking about safe spaces um, and community. Um, uh, my home growing up was the safest place in the world for me to be, and I never wanted to leave it, and it was hard for me to go out into the world. And um, I needed to create safe spaces for myself um, where there weren't any, and that was hard for me to do as a, as a kid with no resources in growing up in an age where the phrase safe spaces had not entered um, our lexicon. And so... Um, yeah, I create them in my writing. In the in the Whipping Man, it's two, it's three men, uh, hunkered down in a, in in a in a destroyed home, uh, which is both a haunted house and and for them a refuge. Um, the family in somewhere they refuse to leave their home when Robert Moses tells them he wants to knock it down to build Lincoln Center. It is their safety and their refuge. Um, in Reverberation, is the same thing. It's Jonathan will not leave his apartment because he's afraid to go out into the world. Um, in Legend of Georgia McBride, these disparate uh, group of citizens um, in this small southern town make their safe space a gay bar. Uh, straight, straight man and, and, his, and his wife, uh, just as much as, as the gay characters in that play, find a safe space inside a gay bar. And, and in this play, of course, um, you know, a lot of the characters feel unsafe in the world. And and the house in the play um, begins to take on that that um, that place of healing and that place of safety and, and refuge. But your safe space also growing up was in um, books and in film. And I want to talk about one book and one film in particular. Which, I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, of course, E.M. Forster's... Howard's End. Howard's End, of course. <laughs> I was only, I was, that was a pause for dramatic effect. Yes. Um, but Howard's End, which came out in 1992, uh, and you saw it um, in 1992. The film. The is, film, yeah. the film, of course. Uh, um, uh, how did that influence this play, The Inheritance? Well, I mean, it's, it was the beginning of the journey that led to the writing of this play. When I, so I was a teenager. Um, I'll take your word on the 1992. I don't, I'm terrible with dates. Um, I sometimes pretend to forget the, the year I was born. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, I was obsessed with movies. I was just, I was movie crazy. I mean, I'm not unlike so many teenagers, and, and especially teenagers who want to, li- to work in the arts. Um, and I remember very specifically reading an, 
up an article in Entertainment Weekly. I don't know if you if Entertainment Weekly is a thing here Not in really, the UK. No. It was it's big in the US, or You're too at least classy it, for that. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I and I was like, I remember, I, I it came out. It started publication when I was a teenager, and I I bought the first copy and I subscribed. It was the first magazine I ever subscribed to, and um, I I I remember an article about a movie with, to me, what sounded like a weird title called Howard's End. I'm like, this is about some guy named Howard and his butt? What's going on here? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember thinking that as a 14-year-old as a kid. I'm like, what is this? And uh, But I, most specifically, they were speaking about Emma Thompson's performance and that um, they were predicting that she was going to win an Oscar for it. And I remember the article saying, essentially, you know, she's not fighting alcoholism. She's not taking care of a sick child. She's she's not dying of cancer. There's no there's no awards bait sort of quality to the role. It is quite simply a luminous performance that is generating serious Oscar buzz. And I I remember at that at, at, as a teenager going, "Wow, I want to see what that looks like." And um but I grew up again like I said in this really small town and we didn't get good movies. I mean, we 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 got the big blockbusters and that was it. And um but Every now and again, a little little art house movie would slip through the cracks, <laughs> and I would watch for it. Every Friday, I would open the newspaper, the local paper, and check the listings to see what movies were opening that weekend. And every now and again, I would luck out, and something interesting would 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 uh, appear. And on this this day, I opened the paper and I looked, and lo and behold, Howard's End was playing in my town. And now I knew I had to work quickly because I had I knew I had a week. It would be gone. <laughs> it would be gone by the next Friday. And so I I um I asked my mother to take me to see it. And uh she did. We went that Sunday after church. <laughs> and it changed my life. That movie absolutely changed my life. I I could not at the time and it was a very long time before I could understand what it was, but there was nothing inherently about that film that should have reached a teenage a gay teenage Puerto Rican living in the panhandle of Florida. There was nothing about that story that remotely resembled my life. And yet from the moment it started, um, uh, that beautiful piano solo uh, and that gorgeous shot of, of, of Vanessa Redgrave wandering th- through the grounds of Howard's End with her the, tra- the train of her dress sort of like sort of like tapping down the the grass it, it just I just I was riveted and I became obsessed with it and I my mother being a, the good teacher that she was she went out and bought me the book and I read the book and um it began a lifelong love affair with that novel in particular and then eventually with Forster uh, as a writer um fast forward to maybe the age 27 I'm gonna guess it's, it's around there um I had read the novel by then maybe a dozen times. I mean, I just kept returning to it over and over. And interestingly, I never read his other books. I never read, I hadn't read Morris. I hadn't read um, um, the other uh, ones. The other ones. (laughs) Um, uh, Room of the View, uh, Passage to India. I'd never read any of the other works. I was monomaniacally focused on um, Howard's End. And I... I was living in New York City. I was in Central Park in Sheep's Meadow. I had purchased a new copy of Howard's End for myself at the Strand. Um, And in the back of the book, this was how sort of singularly focused I was on the novel. In the back of the book, there was a biographical sketch of Forster in in, in which it said that he, it was, oh, by the way, Forster was gay and he wrote 
the novel Morris, which was uh, published posthumously. And, 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 uh, and it was in that moment that I realized what it was about the, the film and the book that reached me as a, teenage, a young teenage gay boy uh, seeing it uh, in my hometown. It was, it was the connection of a, of a, of a, of, of, of a queer writer um, reaching across a century of time and speaking to the heart and reaching the heart of a young queer kid who was not even yet aware, fully aware uh, that he was a queer kid. Um, sort of the, that connection was the thing that caused me to begin to daydream about this play and I wanted to retell the story of Howard's End um, from a contemporary gay perspective. I, I I, I wish I'd written it down the moment, but it was just it just it just struck me it, years later. And this is not to self-aggrandize, but I actually found similar. Uh, I found great understanding of when Forster wrote about his own inspiration to write Morris, how it came to him like a thunderbolt. Uh, it, it's very similar to the way that the inheritance came to me, and and um, and 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 when I read subsequent works of his and and and, and biographies about him. The way he came to to write Morris really does, again, it sounds so self-aggrandizing, but it's just simply true. I just, yeah, the, the, so much of the inheritance just sort of like fell into my head when I, in that day in, in Central Park, discovering that Forrester was gay. That's all I needed. Um, and, um, the, you know, the details started to f- figure themselves out over the, the, the subsequent 15 years. And even the characters, so for instance Henry Wilcox in, in The Inheritance, that's the name which is lifted from uh, right. from from uh, Ian Forster from Howard's End, isn't it? As well. Yeah. So you've got these characters in, in The Inheritance, you know, Toby Darling, Henry Wilcox, which are lifted from, uh, well, w- which are sort of, uh, have references to other novels and, and plays which you, you can sort of read a queer reading into them, even Peter Pan, I suppose, has a sure. queer reading in, yeah. in it. But let's let's talk about the the inheritance okay. now then, because as I said, I've I've read it as a younger gay man, and I've spoken to other uh, younger gay men and um, older gay men about it. And what's so interesting is that people, whoever they are, find themselves or find people they know in this play. There are stories, there are anecdotes, which can be taken from a lived experience in this country, as I'm sure in New York and and in Europe as well. Were you aware that you were writing such a kind of universal gay experience when you wrote this play? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Is there a pressure in that then? It's 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 it's. Um, I mean, we were also speaking only a few days after the f- first two performances, um, a part one alone, um, and I, I've um, I've attempted as best I can to sort of stay innocent to the um, the reaction to the play outside of. The, the laboratory of the of the theater every night uh, those two nights watching the audience uh, experience the play um, the only thing I can say is that um, you know, all I all a writer can ever do I think is is just is is write the truths that they know t- for themselves um, the inheritance um, was my attempt to take my my life there are a lot of my own per- as much as there are are, are uh, uh, plot points and characters and whole sections f- that are adapted from Howard's end in the play so too are there are there experiences from my own life um, that are that are retold um, in this play and the only thing I ever sought to do was 
um, when it came to that to your question was to simply tell my story to tell my truth um, and not to attempt to universal oh god universalize it uh, is that the word yes sure <laughs> um, um, all I could do was just simply tell my story and the gratifying thing in, in the course of developing the play working with with actors on it, working with Stephen, working with David, um, Stephen Daldry, and Stephen David Daldry, Land. David Land, uh, Tom Curtehay, who is our um, our American producer on on the piece. Um, there, there, there is um, there seems to be a sense, at least expressed to me, um, that in sharing with in when sharing in this play my own life, my own experiences, my own observations, the people I've known, uh, the re- relationships I've had, both the positive ones and the sort of the, the um, corrosive ones in my life, um, I, I have, uh, I seem to perhaps have expressed things that other people have felt as well. And of course, that is just the goal that any writer has. Um, I, I can't write anything other than the truth as I know it. And um, the fact that, um, as you say, people are, have started to identify with it is it is the most gratifying thing in the world and and, and is not anything that I could ever try and manufacture um, it is I, I believe in I believe that most writers uh, to a greater or lesser extent write in part because they feel lonely uh, I certainly did um, and I wrote this play in part to understand my myself to understand my story to understand my history to understand my own loneliness, the damage that I've experienced, my tr- my own trauma, which is explored in this play, um, and to make sense of it and to make peace with it and to put it to bed. Um, and um, I'm just grateful that, that, it, that it seems to be um, landing on receptive ears and, 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 and into receptive hearts as well. I mean, I'm I'm not a writer, but the fact that your truth is other people's truths must, for you, feel quite gratifying. That does is that proof that there is a community here. Well, first of all, I I, I, I now I realize I didn't need to spend all that money on therapy and analysis all these years. <laughs> Just um, write a play. Jeez. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it does create a community. I think. Listen, any piece of art does, in some ways, create a community. Um, it, in theater, it creates a community of actors and designers and creatives who, 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 who and producers and who present it. Uh, there is a community that cre- is created every night in the theater. It's different from night to night. Um, there is a community then of people who respond to the play and take it home with them and 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 think about it um, with any luck, you know, beyond the experience of having seen it. Um, you, you know, the the. the it's also something that I experienced watching the jungle uh, um, uh, this earlier this winter. Um, you know, at the young Vic, at the, the young Vic, yeah. uh, that also that Stephen and Justin directed. Um, that 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 theater in particular, but art in general, has the ability to create communities. It 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 can reflect communities, but it can also create communities. There is a community of people who love the movie Clueless. There is a community <laughs> of people who love the novel uh, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. They, they, that is a community. They may never meet, you know. Are you so, in those communities? Um, yeah, both. Okay, um, and, um, you know, some of them hold conventions because it's Star Trek and that's an enormous community. But every piece of art, whether 
people realize it or not does create a community of people who are touched by it, who are moved by it, who hate it. That's also, you know, that's a community too. Um, it, 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 it does, it does any, any piece of art that is experienced to any extent does in fact create ripples in the world. And um, any writer would, would be lying if they didn't say they weren't attempting to to sort of like drop their finger in the in the in the lake and just see how many ripples they can create. And earlier on, you self-defined as queer, and you said that E.M. Forster was queer. Queer is a very political sure. term. Uh, E.M. Forster would not have defined himself. No, lastly, um, uh, well, the, the terminology wouldn't sure. really have, have been as as open as it is today. But um, would you say that this play is political? I, re- I read it yesterday, and there's a whole uh, section where Eric goes on this very impassioned uh, cry about uh, gay liberation, gay activism, and gay rights. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's something that you would like to, to be a legacy of this play, that people watch it and perhaps are more attuned to um, the politicization of their sexuality? Well, here's what I'll say. I think that um, any conversation about community when it comes in particular with this play when it comes to the lives of gay men in the shadow of AIDS um, in, in, in increasingly for the entire not just the LGBTQ community but the, the community of, of, of immigrants in America the, with the Trump administration um, a community is uh, is a political response in, in, when it comes to when it comes to this obviously maybe not less so with, with the clueless, but um, uh, yeah, there, there, there's a reason groups of people of of of, uh, of people who feel marginalized, who are marginalized, who are discriminated against, who are persecuted, form communities. It is a protective. Uh, uh, it's a herd, you know. It is it is the herd mentality. We we are safer together than we are apart, and um, there are reasons that animals. Her, travel in herds. It's 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 safer that way, and um, and so one cannot speak of the gay community and the, the community of gay men without talking about politics, because it is the very thing that has caused the necessity for the community, both in terms of of protection, and then over the, the last thirty forty years, in terms of of political action. Um, so they go hand in hand um, because, like I said, we aren't talking about Clueless or um, Calvino novels. We're, we're talking about the, the lives of, of, of people who um, have had to fight for their lives. So, uh, you know, I knew going in that if, if this play didn't touch on politics, it would be false. Because I, I know very few people in the LGBTQ community who are not politically at the very least aware, if not active. Um, Our lives have been politicized by others, therefore our lives are political. And what about when those communities have their identity appropriated by wider forces in play? So, for instance, the commercialization of pride, mm. the fact that you can go to Starbucks and buy a rainbow flag flavored sure. frappuccino. Uh, what's, yeah. your, what's your, God knows what that tastes like. Oh, uh, what, probably very sugary. Uh, what, uh, what's your view on all of that? Well, I mean, we deal with it in the play a bit. And, and you know, listen, the, the, I had an experience several years ago at, at Pride in New York City where I, I, 
you know, I started going to Pride when I was when I first arrived in New York. I arrived in New York in, in the year two thousand. Uh, my first Pride was in the year two thousand, and um, I went recently, maybe about two years ago. Um, I've been out of town the last two Prides, and so I haven't been. And, and but about two years ago, I was there, and there were so many. There were so many people from so many different um, backgrounds, both socioeconomically, ethnically, racially, religiously, across the gender and and sexual identity spectrum. There were so many just like straight white boys there, uh, in addition to everybody else. And and I actually my my instinct was this is great, this is great. I mean that was my instinct. It's like this is this this is. Isn't this what we fought for? Isn't this what we demanded? Isn't this what we needed? Um, this it, it isn't just a question of of, um, of visibility. It's a question of shared celebration, a shared responsibility. Because it is a it's a march, not a parade. Um, that that at, we need allies. And so when I two years ago at Pride, I'm like, look at all these. Can I say the F word in you this thing? You can say the F word. Look at all these fucking allies. And yeah, so many of them are there, there just because it's a party and it's a Sunday and it's June and, and you know, booze is easy to get and all that stuff. But that's fine, you know. Um, look at all these people who were not, who were not there um, in the early days of the, of, the, of the march. But then perhaps this is, this is me being devil's advocate. What's the difference between integration and assimilation? Well, that's a very good question. Um, you know, and we deal with it in the play, um, in in that scene that you referenced. Um, you know, Eric. Not to give away. You know, the, the I'm trying to figure out how to answer the question without sort of like <laughs> without previewing what's in the play because I think that the play, um, the actors do a great job of, of of presenting this this argument. But essentially, the question here here's what I'll say. I will answer your question with a question. Um, the question that the play poses and the question that the characters wrestle with in one scene in particular is, how do we both uh, celebrate? Um, the um, the the place that our community has found in the world, in the in the in parts of the world, uh, while still holding on to that which uh, defines us. Um, you know, it's true that once the entertainment industry found that there's money to be made off of these stories, you get stripped for parts. You know, no one, you know. No one doesn't think. I shouldn't say no one doesn't think. I don't think <laughs> that that the popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race is a bad thing at all. Um, I think where the play begins to define the dividing line between it is that kind of, of of cultural participation, that cultural dissemination of 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 queer of queer culture across the spectrum of queer culture must coincide with actual, real, political and societal participation. And if you only have one without the other, then it is then it is just being stripped for parts. Then it is absolutely just being cynically uh, co-opted uh, in order to sell T-shirts and frappuccinos and, and, and movies and TV shows. Um, the two must go hand in hand. And what the, 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 the question that the characters in that particular scene wrestle with is, have they gone hand in hand? Or have we sort of... Um, licensed out our <laughs> I mean as one of the characters says, we license out our brand in some ways um, have we really gotten what is that been a fair exchange do, do, do we do we um, do our rights as citizens reflect 
our uh, depiction in media, or are we? Is there still a lack behind that? Is 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 Hollywood uh, uh, kinder to us than Washington D.C.? Um, and the answer, of course, is yes. And not to mention, of course, uh, state legislatures and town halls and um, and school boards. So the fight goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to talk about some of the uh, cultural... Here's the point yeah, I think on, I want on. to make, though, about yeah. that, that question is that I think if there is anything to be gained from uh, sort of the, the, the dissemination of queer culture into, into the broader American culture, British culture, it is that we accumulate more allies. And that is the key difference. That is the key. The fight must go on. Um, it, is a, it, is a, it is a world of difference, though, if you're fighting it alone and if you're fighting it with allies. And without that queer culture and identity being watered down to appease a kind of heteronormative society. Well, yeah, it's like it's don't scare the horses, right? And, and we, I'm, I'm not interested in not scaring the horses. I don't want skittish horses in my barn. <laughs> Nay. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Let's go back to um, the, the play more generally and talk about some of those cultural references which are in the play, which I really, really enjoyed reading. These references to French New Wave cinema, these references to classical music, music, these references to the novels of Charles Dickens, clearly there's a lot of your personal, well, not clearly, but I, I believe that there's a lot of your personal uh, interests injected into the play in those in those parts, and I enjoyed reading those those parts of the play, and I really enjoyed seeing it on stage. Um, do you think, though, is there, does this seem to be conversations around privilege, that these are conversations which characters can have based on a certain level of education or, or a place in which they live and find themselves, rather than a conversation which is, as we said earlier, more universal to to the gay identity. Well, I think in particular the the, the, um, the character of, of Eric and and who is um, you know, very, and is a very middle class character. You know, he grew up um, with, with um, middle class in a middle class uh, family. He, his intelligence uh, and his middle classness got him a good education, um, and then you got the character of Toby, who is his partner, who has no education. He 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 didn't even finish high school. I mean, um, let alone get to college. He he he's self-taught, and uh, you know I think the big uh, divide between those two characters, in the sense, the source of great tension between those two characters, and the source of tension between Toby and increasingly other characters in the play, is that Toby is um, is an autodidact. He is, Toby's a self-made man. Um, uh, Toby, um, Toby had to acquire this knowledge because it was never given to him, and as a result, Toby feels as though he's stolen it. Um, and in depicting characters of privilege in the in the play, um, I don't think Eric Glass would ever tell you that he's a person of privilege. I think that um, Toby would look at him and say, and Toby actually at one point does say, "Who are you kidding, Eric?" You know. Um, I think that that it's 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 important to show a character who doesn't believe that he's privileged, being shown exactly how much privilege he possesses, and there therefore has a responsibility um, to do something with that privilege. Um, you know, he has a line in the second play. Eric says, "Raised in comfort, he spent his life seeking more," um, and that is one of the the crucibles through which Eric, as a character, must go through. But we first have to present him as a character with no troubles, who is. Um, whose life, whose only um, problem in life is, is which you know, am I going to get a seat to the to the Godard um, 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 retrospective at Film Forum? Um, you know, we have to set him off on that on that course. Um, and then, you, of course, you have the character of Toby who, who stole his. It, there used to be a line in the play that I cut because it's just you know, it's a long play and you can't say everything. Um, 
uh, he did not have um, an Ivy League education, but he stole for himself an Ivy League edification. Um, Toby used to, we used to say in the play, Toby actually took uh, Eric's syllabi uh, from Yale that he had kept and read every book in the sil- in, in every syllabus. Um, uh, and then, of course, you have the character of, of Leo, who appears later in the play, who who has nothing, absolutely nothing in the world, um, uh, and who, because of um, an exposure to literature, um, he, he does, his life changes. And I, I do believe that, you know, you don't have to have a, a fancy education to appreciate the works of Ian Forster, I don't have a fancy, I have like a terrible education. I mean, I have a good education. I don't, oh my God, all my teachers are listening to this and going, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, um, I, I don't have a terrible education. I have a solid education. I have a solid public school education. I didn't go to fancy schools. I didn't go to Yale. I didn't go to Harvard. Um, um, my knowledge, it comes from, more from how Toby did it. And I just had to um, steal it. And then in some cases, just watch the movie. Well, there's a generosity. <laughs> there's a generosity in your knowledge as well. You, you share your knowledge and you share your passions and interests in this play, I believe, with your references to, you know, Jules Gim or Breathless or, well, or you know, uh, Canterbury Tales. Well, not Canterbury Tales, but that's fine, but other examples. I know. think that that's, well, we reject Canterbury Tales. Okay. <laughs> I think Toby refers to it as a snooze fest in yes. the play. Um, um, but he quite like Joseph Conrad. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I, in my own experience, it was my relationship with my now husband um, that I discovered um, that I became a better reader and I, that I discovered the French New Wave. It was my husband who is, oh, I think maybe five years older than me, just old enough to sort of be in a different place in his life when we met than I was. He was in his early 30s. I was in my late 20s when we met. And he was like, what do you I mean, I think we've had those conversations earlier. What do you mean you've never seen a Truffaut film? What do you mean? I'm like, I, don't know. I was raised in Florida. What the hell do I know? I love Jurassic Park, though. <laughs> Um, I've, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen Howard's End 27 times. Um, and, and he was like, well, we need to, you need to see Truffaut, Godard. You need to, you know, you know, you need to see, um, these, you need to read this book, read this book, read that book. I referenced If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. The only reason I referenced that book is because it's my husband's favorite novel. And he force fed it to me when I was like 27 years old. And I was like, what is this piece of crap? This makes no sense to me. And I get to the end of the book and I'm like, oh my God, my life has been changed by this book. So I think also, you know, the the play wants to sort of, um, um, demolish the notion that, that knowledge, that literature, that art, is for only for the elites. The play takes characters from every different walk of, of life, every socioeconomic background, from a billionaire to a homeless 19-year-old kid. And the thing that unites their experience in the play is they read, and books uh, save them uh, and ennoble them and, and cause them to think differently about themselves. And that is a very democratic thing as long as you know how to read you you have you 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 have everything uh that you need in order to learn about yourself and learn about the world do you know what my favorite reference in the play is please tell me <laughs> when you reference vanessa redgrave and of course uh, <laughs> when she's in it i yeah. enjoy that um i want to talk to you about it being here because that's quite interesting to me that The Inheritance a play which is so rooted in New York in New York geography in New York lexicon in New York identity is debuting in South London right how do you square that 
I think it's just because Stephen Daldry wanted to take an Uber to work every day. <laughs> I think it's the simplest answer. Um, uh, when when Stephen got the play uh, about two years ago, um, we started to talk about you know where where to do it, and this play was originally a, a commission at the Hartford Stage. Uh, uh, theater in, in, in Hartford, Connecticut, with whom I have a very close, loving relationship. And um, uh, Stephen, Stephen, I think, very wisely decided that actually the best thing for this play, Hartford is not so far away from New York that people wouldn't come and see it. Stephen um, wanted to work on this play away from as far away from New York as possible. Not that like London is impossible to get to from <laughs> New York, of course, but um, he actually just he made the decision very early on. He goes, this is an American play, and our goal is to get it to America. Um, but I think that we'd be wise not to debut it in America. Um, I think it'll be, it'll be easier for you, Matthew, to just leave and go somewhere else. I mean, like, you know, uh, a lot of writers work on their American pieces in Europe so why not me um, and you know and then of course once David Lann um, be- became a, um, a passionate um, advocate for the play um, doing it here at the Young Vic was just um, it, it just made a lot of sense I mean it was it is it is it's just the perfect theater to do it at and um and and it's also meant th- three months in London. I wasn't going to fight them on that. <laughs> um, it's been a bad winter in New York. I'm very happy I'm not <laughs> there right now. It's snowing right now in New York. I'm very happy to be here in early spring with you. <laughs> we had Blizzard Brenda or whatever her name was. That wasn't a blender. No, I'm sorry. That was not a blizzard. I I, 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 I must take I, I must take exception to that. Um, I. The, the, there's going to be a foot of snow on the ground in New York City today. The, the, that dusting that you that 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 we got last week, well, you New which York shut is... London down. <laughs> I am like, I mean, uh, the New Yorker me. I, I have to say that it was very funny because like so many of so many in the comments, oh my god, I can't believe the weather. It's so terrible. I'm so late for work. Oh, the trains aren't working. Blah, blah, blah. And like all the New Yorkers in the company were all like. Wait a minute. Was that your British accent? It was not. No. Well, yes. It's like I do it much better, but just not on on, okay. on this this early okay. in the day. Um, uh, yeah, we all the New Yorkers were like, "What? This is like this is nothing. We this is we get this in July. What are you guys complaining about?" Um, so I don't want to hear about the the bees from the east. But the but the audiences are did come in for the opening. They, they brave the storm. They braved the storm, and that must have been such a special experience for you that you've been working so hard on this incredible. Uh, play without it ever being put in front of an audience ever. all of a sudden that changes last friday how did that feel for you well first of all it was the most terrifying night of my life um i'm, I'm not i'm not joking actually um you know um th- this is the first play of mine that has never been read for an audience we've never done any kind of like a basement lab of it we've just um done it in private we've done workshops in private we've 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 not um sent it out all that much um and um, the one unknowable uh, was well, what was the audience going to re- would they receive this I mean or is this going to be a very long night for us <laughs> and um, yeah the the it's always gratifying when, when an audience gets tells you they're getting it it's always gratifying when they are receptive that they when they prove to you that they're listening that they're invested that they care and that all those things happen uh um, this last weekend with part one, I think that 
I think the particularly gratifying is that this is the most personal play I've ever written. Um, this 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 is this is there's me all all over this. I, I I've I've uh, um, I'm in every character. I, I've 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 you know uh, Hemingway once said there is no trick to writing. You just sit at a typewriter and bleed. Um, and I certainly did this with this play and. Um, you you just simply cannot know what it feels like to to uh, have worked so uh, intensely um, over the course of five years on a piece, and 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 then to finally see it in front of an audience and to have an audience receive it as as warmly and as lovingly as they did those first two. Perform- I mean, listen, we may never repeat. Um, it may that that might be our high water mark. Who knows? But um, I don't think so. Uh, the the love that was created in that room—it was the love that was that was injected into the play as I wrote it. The love that Stephen and and David and and Justin and Elizabeth Williamson, who is my uh, dramaturg from Hartford Stage, uh, the love that that my 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 husband has has shown me as I wrote this play over the years, my agents. The, the, uh, there's been so much love, uh, and then within the cast, this beautiful group of people who are so committed to this, so tireless, so fearless, um, the love that's been created among them and among the designers and among the the, 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 the stage. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, this play was birthed exactly as it was written with, with passion, with dedication, with tirelessness and with love. And then to do it in front of an audience and to have it received with the same exact kind of, 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 um, of spirit was one of the most beautiful uh, moments of my life. I told my husband, I said, second to the moment I said I do at our wedding, I don't remember a greater, greater, greater moment in my life. And I think now, you know, now that um, at least those first two audiences have, have told us that they they are invested in the story, they care about the characters, they care about where we're going, um, now we feel a real responsibility not to let them down uh, with part two. Um and to really deliver. Um, and um, I'm very excited to get back into performances this weekend. And, and assuming that most of our audience will have seen part one, sort of see see where the journey takes them. I feel like the audiences now are a part of, of this family too. And that's, um, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing when that happens. I felt part of the family. I've only just read it. You, you, you mentioned the cast. I want to ask a quite controversial question, which Brilliant. is... Um, the cast in The Inheritance are all extremely uh, talented, uh, a great uh, company of actors. They're also very attractive as well. Um, is there an argument for a play as raw and specific to the gay experience like, as this is, similarly with Angels in America, that these roles should be played by gay men? There is an argument to be made. Um, um, and... Uh, the fact is that that um, several of the lead roles are not. Um, we, when we were casting this play, um, the very first thing I said, um, I said two things. Um, we need to uh, ensure, and we need to be tireless in our efforts to make sure that the the people who are considered for these roles, the people who who are uh, in given auditions for these roles, people who are invited to play these parts, that the first thing we do is we have um, uh, create opportunities for for actors um, uh, 
openly gay actors to straight actors to actors of color that we need to be tireless and thorough in in that process but the second thing i said is that this is a an exceedingly difficult play and at the end of the day we also have to accept that we are going to offer these roles to the actors we feel of those who are available those who are willing and those who are right for the part um we're going to uh, accept the fact that we are we're going to roll the dice and see who we come up with and that the cast has to be a group of actors who we know can tell the story as actors and um and who can work together as 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 an ensemble and so and our our first care was to make sure that everyone that could possibly be seen for this be seen and that we do not ever limit who's going to have an opportunity to walk through that door and make a case for themselves as an actor and then we had to go into a room and figure out who the best people based on who we've seen uh would be and it turns out that um most of our lead actors in the play uh with the exception of John Benjamin Hickey are not are not gay um and um yeah an argument can be made that that they they should be played all by by openly gay actors um but i think that um i i knowing these these men as well as i do and having been through this process with these men as well as i do knowing the care that they have taken and and the genuine love that they feel for these characters i i um i never would have wanted to take a, a journey with anyone else but them through this first production um i think at the end of the day um that i know for a fact that these men take the 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 this responsibility seriously and they know that they're not gay <laughs> they know they're not gay um and um the 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 devotion and the love and the um the seriousness with which they've approached this and the responsibility that they feel they they've taken on um has been really beautiful to watch and it has been part of the thing that has created it's the it's the reference to the pride march that i uh, you know 2 years ago i was like they we need we need allies at the table um and um we need we need um we need all hands on deck telling the story um and um they give beautiful performances and i i can't begrudge them their their right to play them well, it is all hands on deck for the inheritance parts 1 and 2 that i can't wait to see having read them and matthew lopez thank you so much for coming into off book this morning thank you thank you for joining us for this episode of off book by the young vic if you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. 